Hello fellow pilots and other podcast listeners. You're listening to another episode of the Alaska Pilots Podcast. I'm your host, Strategic Communications Chairman Captain David Campbell. Well, it's been another sobering week as we deal with the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, and there's a, a lot of things to unpack this week. Certainly, we know that as it relates to scheduling, there's been a lot of changes and a lot of issues that we are dealing with out on the line from the new MOUs to the way crew scheduling is handling those MOUs and just your daily life. And so we will talk about that a little bit later with Captain Scott Rubin, your scheduling committee chairman. Then, of course, as always, we have your MEC chairman, Will McQuillan, here. We'll also be talking about the grants and loans from the federal government and unpacking the company webcast that occurred yesterday, Thursday. Scott, thanks for coming in again after it's been several weeks since you've been on these. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, David. Yeah, you bet. And Will, of course, thank you. Yep, and thank you, David. As you um, you hinted, this is a bit of a, a somber week. Uh, while the pandemic has touched everybody in one way or another, it became a little bit more personal this week. Uh, when we've lost a total at this point of three Alba brothers to the virus. Um, this week at JetBlue and FedEx and previously a, a pilot at Mesa. And um, I would note that while we haven't lost anyone at Alaska to date, we do have 16 pilots at this point in time today who are infected and quarantined. And uh, I would ask that as we move on through our daily lives that we do take uh, a moment to keep these pilots in mind. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up, Will. And just so everyone knows, due to privacy concerns, we won't be releasing the names of those pilots here. But if you know them, I'm sure they'd appreciate a phone call or a text message or something like that. Yeah. And and to the degree that uh, they've reached out to us, Alpa volunteers have been in regular contact in supporting these individuals. Right. And, and you know, if any of them want to be known, we're certainly happy to share that information. But it, it needs to come from the the individuals. Yep, that's correct. While we're on this topic, I'd like to bring up a call to action that Alpa National came out with recently about health at the workplace in the airplane. Many of the airlines aren't in full compliance with CDC recommendations, and it's really time that they step up to the plate and fulfill those completely. And Alpa would like the FAA to take an active role in enforcing that. And that's exactly what this call to action is about. I've put a link to it in the show notes, so if you're listening on your phone, you can just scroll down to the description of the podcast episode, and that'll take you right to the call to action. I think that'll go a long way into ensuring our health while at work. All right. Well, let's start talking about the the grants and the loans. And uh, just a reminder, this is being recorded on Friday, April 10th, and as of yet, we're still waiting to hear from the Treasury Department whether the Grants have been approved and everything, but let's let's get into that, Will. Well, I did receive an update last night, and I've been promised another one today just on the, the status of our application. Uh, Alaska, as well as every airline, met the application deadline last week, and uh, it's been characterized that there's lots of ongoing discussions with the Treasury Department since that application deadline, mostly centered around the compensation element that's being pledged by, by each airline. Um, Those have been described as very productive and progressive discussions, and uh, I assume that we will hear shortly on the status of the grants. Um, The loan applications and the details of the loan eligibility seem to be the next obstacle, 
And as currently written, we've noted before in previous podcasts, few airlines would actually be eligible for these loans because they still have access to the capital markets. So um, those negotiations, and that was actually mentioned during a presidential briefing, will be intensifying over the weekend. All right. Well, I look forward to hearing about the results of that. And of course, once once we know more, we'll communicate that with the pilots. And probably the the fastest way to note that is we'll hang it on the new uh, chairman's blog on the website, which is alaskapilots.org. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. As soon as we have any positive feedback and we, we know the status, then we'll, we'll update that blog and let the, the pilots know. Financial information like that and others came up on the all-employee webcast from... Thursday. Shall we start unpacking that a bit, Will? Yeah, there, there was a lot there. And I think, um, I hope that most pilots, based on the feedback I've gotten, have had a chance to at least become familiar with what was discussed. I know that some of the data on load factors and cash flow that were um, disclosed during that, uh, that webcast were a little sobering. But I will point out that they're consistent with what I've seen and heard um, over time with uh, my briefings with the company. And even though they've been evolving downward, right, everybody kind of started at a different spot um, in this modeling, much of that outlook mirrors the, uh, the same independent briefings that I get from economic finance and analysis at Alpa National. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was certainly sobering to hear the, the numbers from our company. But it, as you say, it's not something that was a surprise to you. It, it's industry consistent, right. correct. And you've been hearing that from the company for a while. The company and, like I said, EFNA also on the independent modeling. It, mm-hmm. it all basically paints the exact same picture. And so I would say that, you know, while that may sound alarming, it's not really, as we've said before, it's not a time to be alarmed, but it is a time to be vigilant, right? Um, this is different than 9-11. We're navigating a, a different landscape. And uh, right now, what everybody's spending a lot of time and effort doing is trying to model what recovery looks like. And in that regard, too, there isn't consensus. There's a lot of unknowns about how and when that recovery will occur and what it will look like. Well, exactly. And that's why I think that we've been so insistent and focused on the grant process and the loan process, because that buys time and gives the airlines the opportunity to evaluate that landscape and make smart decisions instead of, as we've said before, uh, any decisions based in, in a fear environment. Our job, my job, the MEC's job, is to focus on protecting the pilots and our careers here, the Alaska pilots. Will, we've talked about this a little bit already, the the difference between what the grants will cover and and the payroll obligations. How is that going to play out for us, do you think? Yeah, we have talked about it, and that is a real popular question that we get from pilots and that we heard echoed on that webcast as well, is people trying to understand that if the grants cover um, payroll and wages and benefits, then you know why are uh, basically hours worked and uh, reductions being sought in payroll costs? And that's because the grants provision $25 billion of aid and the industry payroll is a little bit closer to $31 billion dollars of aid, maybe 31 and a half, and means that each airline is going to have a, a pro rata share uh, that will need to be covered. There'll be a shortage. And to be clear, they cannot impose CBA concessions. They can't touch wages and benefits while the grants apply, and they can't make CBA changes. And you know, for us as pilots, it means that those current 
uh, CBA minimums, such as the 75-hour guarantee or 79 hours for short call reserves, still apply. But what we can expect while they're trying to address this shortfall is that they will be working hard to drive towards those contractual minimums in terms of our scheduling. So besides the contractual things that are already available, what have you and the company been working on to help bridge that gap? Well, as an MEC, uh, we have, as you know, already engaged with the company on developing the language around incentive lines and the uh, unpaid voluntary enhanced leaves of absences to help fulfill uh, the pilot group's portion of this payroll shortfall. You know, those were awarded yesterday on Thursday, and then today is when bidding first opens for the June schedule. What assurances do you have that that is going to cover the gap and, you know, without maybe covering too much of the gap, if you know what I mean? Well, all I can say at this point is that um, our EF&A, our economic finance and analysis uh, experts, are continuing to analyze the company's finances and the impacts of these programs to see exactly what uh, those measures have contributed towards covering the payroll shortfall that the company spoke of on the webcast. Well, I thought as I listened to that company webcast, uh, some of the takeaways for me was that they actually mirrored some of the things that we've been saying right on this podcast about how we don't really know what the future looks like. And and to me, what's important about that is that everyone should take caution when making predictions or more to the point, plans about the future, kind of in the near term and in within a year. And if you look at how vastly things change as we were trying to predict the, the downturn um, from just a few weeks ago, that, that's been wildly different than what we are seeing today, the kind of reality that we're living in. And I think that any firm predictions about what the recovery will look like, we should also be a little bit suspicious of. To that end, it is nice that they made a real commitment to avoid furloughs. I was glad to hear that. Yeah, and I definitely welcome that acknowledgement and reiterate again that that is our staunchest goal and expectation as well, that they will do everything to avoid a furlough. One thing that was said um, that I think we got the most feedback on was pretty much a, a direct acknowledgement that there's a chance that the airline emerges smaller in the fall. And we've said that and we've always known that that could in fact be the case. However, um, they reiterated, as I said, the real concern and issue is to focus on when we start talking about that issue of furloughs, what the summer of 21 looks like, not this summer, and what demand looks like beyond the fall, right? That mm -hmm. and the success of any furlough mitigation efforts will drive what, if any, furlough is needed and what it might actually look like. Um, there are formal mitigation strategies called for in Section 23 that would be fully explored once a, a furlough is actually forecast. And they said it as well in the town hall that none has been forecast at this time, as we've said many times before. Right. And, you know, a way I would describe that is a smaller airline doesn't translate directly to what that means for the pilots at this airline because of all of these things. We don't know what the needs are for pilots. Right. Obviously, the the time to train to keep pilots current, to be able to meet last minute demand, 
um, you know, and opportunities that may present themselves. As we said, it's a much more longer range forecast that would drive uh, a decision or a need to furlough. But I do know that the the discussions around a smaller industry and a smaller airline absolutely cap- captured a lot of attention yesterday. Right. Yeah, and, and I don't by any means mean to sound Pollyanna-ish and that, that don't worry, things are going to be fine, but that the point is we don't know what it'll look like. And so be cautious when you make you know, future tripping, in other words. Correct. We'll always have a very direct and honest assessment of what things look like. And the immediate ro- road ahead does look a little bit rough, but we're more focused on those long-range forecasts. And I was glad to see the company acknowledge that's where their focus is as well when they start talking about staffing decisions. Well, I was curious about something I saw on the company webcast. I, I know that there's been a, a lot of interest from our pilots about early out incentive programs. And I know you've been talking with the company about that, but they said they weren't really interested in it at this time. What's, uh, what's going on with that? Yeah, the, I mean, obviously the company approached us with interest in that idea weeks ago, um, and there is significant pilot interest in it. And then that seemed to be a little bit uh, different than the narrative that came out Thursday. Um, you know, this week we did meet with the company for our second round of discussions around that uh, as far as a retirement incentive program, and they do remain interested in the program, um, despite what you heard on the webcast. And uh, however, I would say that this week, kind of like what you heard in the webcast, they did pump the brakes on that interest a little bit. Um, they indicated that they want a, a clearer vision of the future before they get into aggressively pursuing a pilot early retirement incentive program. What they said was that they're really concerned about knowing what recovery looks like before they want to get substantially into moving further forward. Um, I will say that I think and we feel that that's frustrating because in my mind's eye, there is certainly, regardless of uh, recovery scenarios, room to incentivize retirements here. And there's definitely interest. Regardless, our position is, and it will remain, that there needs to be a fully implemented retirement incentive program that allows the process to play out before any pilot is furloughed. Uh, we asked the company for a commitment on this, and we are awaiting a response. So if even if they are seeking a little bit of a, a slowing of the discussions on this topic, that we want that assurance that it's allowed to fully play out before we, we start to look at any involuntary staffing reductions. Okay, good to know. And I, I guess the takeaway for us is that the MEC hasn't given up on that idea. Oh, no, not at, not at all. And we're going to continue to promote that idea because it's obviously uh, pilot-focused and something that the pilots want, just like everything else that we do. Good. I'm glad to hear that, Will. All right. Well, I think the other big news or, or what's different about this week is we are now uh, about to bid for the first lines in this new reality. And... So let's, Scott, let's move on to what you've been working on. Tell me about the, the May schedule. What is, what is that going to look like? Well, you know, by now, uh, I'm sure most of our pilots have looked at the May schedules. Just big picture, uh, some big items. You know, in April, when we had our original bid award, we had close to 80,000 hours. After the, after the pull down of our flying, we're at 20,000 hours. Taking a look at the bid packet, you're going to see it's a lot thinner than you're used to. For example, uh, there's only 57 pairings in Seattle. There's four pairings 
in Los Angeles on the Airbus and only three pairings in San Francisco on the Airbus. I really encourage everyone to look at the scheduling summary. The guys did a great job of detailing what changes you're going to see and, and the challenges that they had. Scott, I'm curious, as people bid, there is going to be an effect of the incentive lines that, that people ask for. So what do we know? How many of those got awarded? And then how is that going to affect a, a, a pilot who didn't bid for one? Just over a thousand of our pilots took advantage of incentive lines. And is there is that published somewhere so a guy can see where they stand on the new, like what is, what is effectively a new base position list? Yeah, I talked to crew planning uh, Friday, uh, April 10th to ensure that they were going to put out a new el- eligible to bid list for May. That for for the lines for the lines mm-hmm. that took into account people that will were awarded an incentive line. So, okay. Um, obviously, that'll be a drastic change with uh, over a yeah. thousand pilots taking the incentive lines for May. Scott, I know you work pretty closely with the contract compliance committee, and now that we've instituted a couple MOUs, there's let's say more utility for those folks. Uh, they've been a little bit busier and some of that I think is is just because of the difficulty of crew scheduling implementing the the MOU as it was intended as it was written and you know importantly as it was agreed to so what things are you seeing and what should pilots be looking out for yeah David um, first I want to thank the contracts contract compliance committee for all their work um, in the last week they've handled over 108 different calls and in a normal week it's usually a dozen to maybe 20 so the volume's been really high and those guys have just done a fantastic job of helping out our pilots and you know that's how we collect information on how the company's handling our contract Um, also educating pilots on the contract so uh, one of the issues there's several issues we've been dealing with management in the last uh, week or so regarding the cancellation makeup and the assignment of trips. One of the issues we've been recently dealing with is crew scheduling attempting to require a pilot to report earlier than their originally scheduled trip. And I'll give a quick example. If your original report time is at 10 in the morning and now crew scheduling is trying to have you report at 8 in the morning, There is no contractual requirement for you to report earlier than you originally scheduled, whether it's a reassignment or just a retiming of your original flight. And just to be clear, not in the contract and not in the MOU either. Correct. In fact, in the MOU, we specifically spell out to make it very easy to understand that you're not required to report earlier. You can at the pilot's discretion, if if the pilot is willing to do that or would like to do that, absolutely you can accept that assignment but there is no requirement for you to report earlier and i i want our pilots really to understand that and have confidence that that is contractual thank you for clearing that up scott one thing i've noticed and a lot of pilots are reporting this too is that when they look at crew access it seems like there's a bunch of trips in open time and then all of a sudden they're gone what's what's going on yeah so i mean we've had pilot feedback on open time disappearing and i'd like to give a little insight into what is going on and the challenge that crew scheduling is dealing with. So 80 to 100% of the pairings will be affected by the new schedule that we're going to start flying April 10th. Crew scheduling is rebuilding trips out of the active legs that we have remaining 
so that there's some efficiency and less deadhead. And when they do that, it looks or appears like they've cleaned out or hidden open time. I don't think it's nefarious. It's just that they need to do this process in order to reconstruct trips so they can reassign them to bid block holders that are on cancellation makeup or reserves and or they'll put them in open time. All right. So, I mean, the takeaway is you've got eyes on this and if they were hiding open time, you would know. Yes. Okay. We're watching. We don't believe they're hiding open time. We think they're working the problem and, and assigning the trips either to a pilot that's on cancellation makeup or a reserve or they're putting them in open time as appropriate. Mm-hmm. We, you know, it's an odd month and yeah. just pull down and it takes some time to rebuild these trips. There's been a little bit of a pain point in the cancellation makeup notification lately. Walk us through that. Well, the real problem is, is that crew scheduling had such a volume to handle that they were ha- struggling to notify 24 hours out. Mm-hmm. It seems like this last week they've actually gotten a handle on it now that they have been able to restructure and rebuild pairings. Right. They'll be much more equipped to be able to notify pilots 24 hours ahead of time, which will really help our commuter pilots because... 24 plus hours out now they can get a call from crew scheduling that they can the pilot can choose to answer or not because you're not required to be contactable on your time off now if you get a reassignment having that 24 hours notice will really help with your commute to get in and your planning to to fly the, the the new assignment that's been frustrating for all the pilots but i think for our commuters it creates a a real burden for them yeah, definitely uh, jump in on that, that we're seeing some markets now that have one time a day service now. And if you don't get timely notification of your reassigned trip or cancellation, you simply can't make it. And this is an issue that we've tried to address time and time again uh, with the company to make them aware that they have a problem. At the very least, they should be working on providing hotels for our, our pilots who are forced to come in the day before. And are they? At this point, they've pushed back, but we'll continue to address the, the issue, the concern. Yeah, I think another thing that has caused a little bit of confusion is the, how these cancellations are noted, noted on pilot schedules. The annotations, yeah. Um, there's different kind of annotations. Most of all the cancellations right now, they're all handled under MOU 20-04, and that should be annotated on the pairing. Um, having PIL on your roster after one of these cancellations is um, concerning some pilots because that's a pilot illegal code and you're not really illegal it's just the only code they have to ensure pay protection for the MOU and it's totally fine that you have that on there you're not really illegal you're just uh, you're being pay protected for your original trip so it's a good thing um, other coding in crew access that pilots have asked about is PCM and PCMP. PCM is a cancellation makeup period. We only have one right now, which is 1500 to 1800. And you'll see a PCMP, which is cancellation makeup period PM. There's really no difference between the two whatsoever. One crew scheduler may pick the PCM, one may pick the PCMP. 
it's nothing to worry about. Just make sure the times are correct and that you don't have a contactability period scheduled before your original port time. Scott, if I'm on cancellation makeup, what is the order of assignment that I should expect? Am I going to go before a reserve? That's kind of frustrating for us because we don't have a contractual order of assignment for cancellation makeup. Since you're on cancellation makeup, you're getting pay protected for a trip and, and you could be assigned a trip days out before the original, a week out or the day before or the day of, depending on the circumstances. So yes, in general, if you're on cancellation makeup, you're going to receive a trip before a reserve pilot would. Some things to take into consideration when they're assigning these cancellation makeup trips is the trip they are trying to assign you has to fit in the footprint of your original trip. So if you have a three-day trip, it's got to get you back when the original three-day trip would have got you back with the exception of it could go five hours beyond. Right. That's You can't start earlier and it can't end later than five hours. And if there's a number of pilots on cancellation makeup that fit that, how does that assignment work? We don't have a defined process in our CBA for that, but I've asked that to management and, and they have indicated that they will do it in a seniority order. So the junior pilot would be assigned it in that scenario. Have you come across any other misunderstandings about contactability? Yeah. So once your flight cancels, there's basically three options, three or four options that can occur to a pilot. So you get assigned a new trip, or you get put on cancellation makeup. And that cancellation makeup period that we negotiate in the MOU is from 1500 to 1800 on only days that are on only footprint days of the original trip. So for example, on Monday you had a trip at start and on Monday is the first day that you could have a contactability period. There's rumors and, and pilots being told that they have to be put on contactability on the day prior. So in our scenario on Sunday, and that's not the case. Those contactability periods are only also for a trip assigned the following day. So if you're on in that window contactability on Monday, it's for a trip on Tuesday, but never a day prior to the start of a, a trip. Scott, I've got a caution from the contract compliance team about notification. Would you flush that out? Yeah, so crew scheduling is processing a bunch of these cancellations a day and in their effort to save themselves some time, they're sending out a text message to all the people that they processed in that order of assignment window. It could be a notification simply that your trip's canceled and you're going to do cancellation makeup window or a new assignment. And the text message said something to the effect of, you know, we're done processing the cancellations for tomorrow. Please check crew access and acknowledge the scheduling change notification. You're not required to. We've always recommended you hit ignore until you fully understand what changes has occurred. And then by all means, call crew scheduling and have that conversation um, when you need to. Yeah, one of the risks of self-acknowledging is that you acknowledge everything that's on there and you, you may not know everything you just said yes to. That's exactly right. 
Another issue that the contract compliance team brought up that is affecting commuters is when they have to potentially commute during their contactability window between three and six. So what, what's the recommendation there? Yeah, I think the recommendation is to call crew scheduling prior to your commute and explain that the conflict of your last opportunity to get to base is right during that contactability window. And ask them if uh, you can be released or they have a legal reassignment for you for the cancellation makeup or if they're just going to put you on a contactability window for the next day. And hope, hopefully they, as we get, and hopefully as crew scheduling gets open time cleaned up and these trips rebuilt, they'll be able to give pilots that notification much further out. Great. And by the way, we might point out that if a pilot is released, they still get paid. Yeah, correct. We've, we've had, that's absolutely true. You're paid protected for the original trip or your reassignment, whichever is greater. We've had pilots call up and ask to be released and the crew scheduling told them that if they release them, they won't be paid protected for the trip. That is not true that there's no contractual provision for that. So if you call up and ask to be released, they can say no to you being released, but they also have the ability to release you and you're still pay protected. Right. So no commuter has to make that choice of whether I want to have the safety of staying at home versus getting paid. That That is not on the table. Correct. So I think as my conversation with Scott has illuminated, one solution sometimes brings up other challenges that we need to resolve. And I think we're not done interacting with management and how it's going to affect the pilots and, and scheduling issues and others. So looking ahead, what what's on the table, Will? But you're absolutely right that we're going to continue to look ahead and try to advocate for and uh, fix the things that pilots have told us that they would like to see addressed. Um, we've also heard from a number of the pilots that they would like to see some of the flying spread out uh, more evenly to allow less flying on a line as long as they're pay protected to guarantee um, would mean obviously fewer people on reserve, possibly a better quality in terms of the, the line solution and uh, more days off for those who are awarded lines and fewer commutes too. So these are concepts that, uh, that we're interested in and the company seems to share some interest in this. Um, we, you know, this has come up over the course of the last couple of weeks, but there simply wasn't enough time to fully flesh out how to resolve these interests for the May schedules. The, the concept simply touches too many areas of the CBA, and we'd want to be very careful about how we approach the concepts and see how they'd interact and how they would might work and what the language would have to look like. Um, I might add, too, that we've continued to receive pilot feedback um, and we know that we need to advocate again to the company to work on the, the needs of the commuting pilots. Um, we've pointed out, you know, for example, that our commuter policy requires two flights. And yet in many markets, there is or shortly there's only going to be one flight per day. So we do need to continue the discussions and the pilot feedback is very, very important to those discussions. Well, you just brought up something that I'd really like to drive home. The, the pilots out there will have lots of ideas about how to tackle this issue, how to crack this nut, so to speak. Who should they bring those ideas to? 
well, as I said, your your reps are the advocates for the pilots. They're your elected representatives um, who are, are there to advance your needs, and they set policy. Uh, so much as the input is valued when I receive it or when the negotiating committee receives it, the decision makers and the policy makers are your reps, and everybody should know how to be able to, to get in touch with uh, your representatives in your base and have a phone conversation, email conversation, and then they'll bring those uh, those needs to us and we'll address them formally. Yeah, and just to put a finer point on that, I could have a conversation with you all day long about what I think the MEC should do, but it, it won't really matter because you're not the one who makes those calls. It's, it's the elected reps. Correct. Every, everything that you would bring to me, I'd have to bring to the body and say, how do you feel this resonates with the pilots? Does it advance the pilots' needs? And if they believe so, then it becomes uh, policy. But, you know, obviously I have a lot of people reach out on a, a daily basis and uh, they certainly reach out to the negotiating committee as well. And they reach out to Scott. I mean, we, we hear, you know, lots of good input, but that needs to be channeled, I think, through the representatives if we are to make policy the way it was designed. Yeah, I agree. And, and knowing all these guys, I, I just reiterate, call your rep. They they want to hear from you and they need to hear from you because they're the ones that are going to decide whether we pursue one policy or another. That that's, up, that's on them and not on you, even though you do a lot of the work to implement it. Yeah, that's correct. And, and th- nobody should be offended either when they reach out to either, say, myself or to Chris Gruner or to Scott here, and we redirect you back to your reps and thank you for your input, because that's just the appropriate way for the process to work. Well, Will, as we start to close down this particular episode, I, I just remind folks that when a lot of new information comes out, as it did with the company webcast, it's uh, a period that may stir up more rumors and just to be cautious about that right right i mean we addressed that last week but uh uncertainty always breeds rumors and i think that any time that people receive a little information instead of a lot of information they start to uh, again try to connect the dots and so the rumor mill is always in in full swing um, as we said last week remember to use that kind of that instrument cross check when you hear rumors because I think when you fact check things from multiple sources, those rumors break down pretty quickly into truths. And uh, as we just said, reach out to your reps. Your reps have a pretty good pulse on what's happening and be able to you know, determine fact from fiction. I, I couldn't agree more. Well, what other final thoughts do you have? Well, as I said and have said time and time again, I remain incredibly proud of this pilot group and what everybody is doing every day as this process is played out now for over a month. Um, remind everybody that we really are 100% in this together, just as we were for contract negotiations, as we are for contract negotiations, and will be. Um, your MEC and I are be working hard for the needs of the pilot group as a whole. Uh, the focus going forward is on remaining unified and pursuing goals that protect the pilot group and uh, encourage everybody just to make sure you take care of each other. Recognize that stress is mounting for each of us in this time. And again, try to focus on the things that we can control um, and not the things that are unknown and that we can't control. Very good. Well, thank you very much, Will. Yep. Thank you very much, David. And again, as we started the podcast, make sure everybody takes a, a few moments to reach out to people who they know who are impacted by the the virus and to remember those that we've lost here in the Alpha family this week.
let's hope we don't lose any more. And again, I'll remind everyone, please take that call to action. I think that'll go a long way into ensuring or at least helping us all stay healthy out there. A link to it is in the show notes, so you can click on it. It'll take you right there and just take a, a moment or two to complete that. Thanks, you guys, for coming in. Thank you, Scott. Good to see you again. Thanks for having me, David. Appreciate it. You've been listening to another episode of the Alaska Pilots Podcast. I'm your host, Strategic Communications Chairman, Captain David Campbell. Thank you.